Hi, welcome to Redeem the Commute. I'm Ryan, your host for The Money Course, and we're shifting gears a little bit. Up to now, we've been talking about budgeting, an important component of keeping watch over and understanding how we spend and uh, earn our money. And now we're going to take a different tack, and we're going to look at what Christians believe about money. What did Jesus have to say about it, and how does it influence how somebody deciding to follow Jesus deals with money and possessions? We're going to be using some content that was originally written for a course called Following Jesus, a course that we're going to be releasing on Redeem the Commute in entirety soon. But here's a sneak peek. Enjoy. So for those who've made a commitment to try and follow Jesus and accept the way that God is holding out to us, then serious thinking about money, really serious thinking about money, plays in this decision. And it's absolutely fundamental. For such people, we'll look at four principles of stewardship that are worth serious consideration. This is the uh, foundation principle of stewardship. Everything belongs to God. God isn't trying to take money away from us. That's, you know, let, me, let me make that perfectly clear. God is not trying to take money away from us. We're being invited to share in God's work and to commit our resources to this work. The invitation is always a privilege, and it comes from from our need for God, not God's need for us. Remember, we go back to that yearning. We have that God-shaped hole, and only God will fill it. It's our yearning for God. So it'd be difficult to argue with the first principle of stewardship, but the second principle, the second one, might need a little bit more convincing. The conventional wisdom concerning money is that we have to learn how to hang on to it, not how to give it away. We've got to try and hang on to it. We've got to try and keep it hidden away and stored, rather than give it away. So I'm going to offer three reasons why it's important for growing Christians to learn to give, and indeed why we need to give. The first one is we need to give in order to be free. The seductive power of money is undeniable. I've shared my story in C101, and I know a million people are the same thing. The seductive power of money is undeniable. And it's also disarmingly subtle. It ensnares us without, ever, without us even realizing or being aware of it. It wraps chains around our hearts, our minds, and our imagination. And we don't even notice it happening. There is only one way. The power of money can be broken by learning to give it away. The basic question is simply, will I control my money or will my money control me? When we begin to give, the chains begin to break. And, I mean, we're coming up for Christmas. We're going to give out presents. And don't, doesn't everyone say that giving is better than receiving? And we think about that, and I think about that at Christmas. It's like, yes, it's lovely to give presents at Christmas, and I actually really enjoy it. But I just think about that in terms of presents. Do I think about that in terms of my bank balance and what's in my paycheck at the end of every week? So when we learn to give, the chains can start to break. And it can be very uncomfortable, and it can frequently be very painful. Yet once the chains are broken, we can experience the sheer exhilaration of freedom. Only then do we realize how tight the chains were around our hearts. Only then can we really understand what Jesus said, what Jesus meant when he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When we were, we were created to give, not to hoard, and Jesus wants us to be free. We need to give in order to grow. 
One of the central questions for us on our spiritual journey is, are we willing to trust God? And Ryan's cartoon of the baptism of the guy holding his wallet out of the water, give everything to God. I'm just going to, I'll look after the money side, don't you worry, God. So we can't even trust God with that. But we've, we've agreed this morning, I think, that money is fundamental to our lives. It's, it, it's, we can't exist without it in our society. So that biggest, most fundamental part of our society, we're not prepared to trust to God. That cartoon kind of makes it the smallest thing. His whole body's immersed in the baptismal waters. It's only a little wallet sticking out. But in fact, that's the biggest part almost, that he's not trusting to God then. We've been conditioned through the whole of our lives to pursue financial security as a primary goal. We're faced with this conditioning. When faced with this conditioning, these words of Jesus sound ridiculous nonsense, if not downright irresponsible. Uh, we've got our Bibles in front of us, so if we can all grab our Bibles and turn to Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 33, which are going to be at the end of... Oh, thanks, Mel. Towards the end of our Bibles. Let's see if we can find it. Matthew 6, 25 to 33. So we're on page 6 of the second half of the Bible. So what we're taught here is this. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life or what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you by worrying add a single hour to the span of your life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is, it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things, and indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be given to you as well. So there's Matthew summing up what we should do and how we should look at money and our possessions, our clothes, our food, everything we need. You see, when our lives are properly centered, the peripheral issues will be sorted out as well, and that's what Matthew is saying to us. Focus on God. Center your life on God. He's going to take care of you. He, take care, he takes care of the birds. He takes care of the lilies. He takes care of nature. He's going to take care of you all the more, surely. So the goal of our lives as followers of Jesus is to seek God and God's purpose first of all. And to trust that when we do so, the rest of our lives will fall into place. And this is Jesus' prescription for peace. So as you hear myself and Ryan speak this morning, probably a million questions are popping into your mind. And they all start with two words. Yes, but. And so many times when you challenge someone to do something, the first word is yes, but. Given our conditioning, it's only natural that that's how we're going to react. The point of Jesus' teaching, though, is quite clear. Those who follow him are called to develop a radically new understanding of the place and purpose of money in their lives. This is a perspective that is developed in the face of great resistance. 
when we analyze that resistance, we discover that the very idea of such dependence on God scares us half to death. And it does. And it, it's a big thing. The good news is that God knows all about this. And then, wait for him, invites us to put him to the test. So let's read Malachi chapter 3, verse 10 in our Bibles. So what Malachi has to say is this. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And thus put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you over overflowing blessing. Put me to the test, says the Lord. So, so strongly does this fly in the face of uh, common sense that the only way to evaluate is to try it. We must learn to give in order to grow and challenge God, put God to the test. We need to give in order to find fulfillment. Enough always seems to be just a little bit more than I have right now. A study was done by an economist called George Barner, and it shows that most people seriously believe they need approximately eight to $10,000 more a year to live the way they would like to. And no matter how much their income increases, they still believe they need eight to $10,000 more. The Old Testament prophet Haggai comments on this phenomenon. And this is the uh, book of Haggai, chapter 1, verses 5 to 6. Now therefore thus, says the Lord of hosts, consider how you have fared. You have so much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And you earn a wages, and you earn that, sorry, and you that earn wages, earn wages to put them in a bag with holes. So this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much. You have harvested little, yet you eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Seems kind of a bit empty, doesn't it, really? Seems all a bit silly. When we try and find satisfaction through our possessions, enough is never enough. Whatever we have is always too little. Satisfaction, happiness, and joy come from meaningful relationships and activities. Remember what Freddie Mercury said, had everything in the world but he didn't have that relationship. He didn't have that core relationship he was wanting. Yet there's a guy with more money than Solomon, probably. I mean, he was, he was, he was pointing to the very truth of this. It's no accident that many people actually point to the happiest times of their lives when they actually had few material possessions. The reverse of this is that the increased financial prosperity did not increase the happiness one bit. So as they got richer, they didn't get any happier. I look now and I earn less now than I did 11 years ago when I was working in London. But I'm genuinely happier. I was lucky when I was working in London, I earned an awful lot of money. I had great possessions, a beautiful sports car, I had a lovely house or a lovely flat in a nice district in London. I earn less now and I've got three kids. But I'm definitely happier than I was then. I thought I was happy then, but not really, no. Much happier now. There are extra frustrations, I'll admit, but I am genuinely at the core much happier. The University of Toronto's Richard Florida has seen 
that happiness doesn't rise with wealth, that happiness, sorry, does rise with wealth up to a point where people's basic needs are met. Then it flattens out. So you get happier as you get more money to that point where you can meet your basic needs. And that's where the sort of happiness line stops growing. Your money might keep growing, but the happiness line doesn't really go up anymore. It flattens out. Even though it does rise, however, Florida says income doesn't lead to happiness, but rather to the opposite. So the more you earn, chances are the less happy you'll be. He says, unhappy people tend to channel their time and effort into the pursuit of material goods. They become materialistic, missing out on relationships. They're focused on their goods. They miss out on relationships. They miss out on the experiences that have the greatest effect on personal fulfillment. A new car, a new set of golf clubs, a new handbag. I think that's come over our table uh, this morning. <laughs> um, even a new house makes its owner temporarily happy. I moved into a house three years ago. I was so happy. It's like, fine, this is a great house. I love it. And beginning of this year, I'm like, this is a crappy house. I want a better house. You know, this, this house doesn't do anymore. What's changed in three years? Nothing. My family hasn't grown. Nothing's changed. But what once satisfied me doesn't. And I had to step out of being a house owner and, and look at being someone who's, who has God at the center of their lives to think, well, it's got four walls. It's got bedroom for each person. I'm lucky. It's a great house. It does everything I want. It was my wife who brought me back down to earth on it and helped me uh, put perspective. But yeah, you know, for a while I thought my house wasn't good enough anymore, yet three years ago it was perfect. It was fantastic. So our cars, our possessions can become tarnished very quickly. The car gets scratched, the handbag goes out of style, and the basement develops a leak. Florida says that his research shows that it's not that people with more money that are happier, it's just that happier people are better earners. Happier people are better earners. People who give of their time and service of others will tell you time and time again how incredibly fulfilling it is. The happiness doesn't come from the wealth or from the financials or otherwise, but rather because they're happy with what's, what God's given them and they are able to be content and happy in all things. And that's a kind of wealth in itself that overflows into all other parts of your life. So you can learn to be content and happy with what you have, that happiness can explode. How are money and power connected? Where are we supposed to find power? Have a great discussion. Bye for now.